0: This is Comms Day Live. I'm Graham Lynch. Welcome to the show. Today a lot of a lot of interviews. <laughs> three three to be precise. Um, all fascinating. Um, and it's a long podcast today, so please stick with it. Um, we'll be speaking with Parag Thakur, who's a senior vice president of Borderless WAN at NetScope, um, who's visiting Australia and came in to chat with us, finding out all about what's happening in that technology space. We also had a great chat with Nico Fansomaran. He's the CTO at Absolute Software, who specialises in endpoint security. But what what was um, what he was talking about? What he will be talking about is um, artificial intelligence, or the hype around it, and why it might not necessarily be a panacea in the cybersecurity space. But first up, we have. A fascinating interview with Jaya Balu. She's the global chief security officer at Rapid Seven. She's based in the Netherlands, but she's visiting Australia this week to speak at the CyberCon event that's taking place in Melbourne. Now, um, we we're going to we cover a lot of topics of her. Um, across quantum AI um, and and what are some of the cybersecurity threats and challenges for telcos specifically right now. But I started off by asking her what her message will be for the CyberCon event in Melbourne.
1: Well, the simple message is very uh, succinctly that we are very often in an operational mode that we're just kind of, you know, tackling and blocking threats and that we rarely lift our heads away from that kind of blocking, detecting kind of hamster wheel to think about what are we doing? You know, not are we doing things right, which is we're, you know, pretty focused on that because of all the compliance and regulations. We're focused on doing things right, but we're not always thinking about are we doing the right things and it's really a talk about the ethics in cybersecurity, about looking at uh, laws that we are just kind of tacitly agreeing to because, well, what else can we do? Someone else said that, you know, and I don't think that we're using our voices enough to be heard from an from an operational perspective to go back and challenge some of these regulations, which are misguided at best and quite evil uh, if we take it to the worst extreme.
0: Okay, well, we'll come back to that. I wanted to ask, first of all, um, you know, a bit, having a look at a bit of what you've had to say in other fora um, about some of these topics, uh, one of the things that um, I guess stood out for me was your discussion about some of the challenges and, and risks of quantum technologies. We, we, we hear a lot about artificial intelligence, but not so much about quantum. But it's still bubbling away there in the background, um, you know, fi- finding a place in the ecosystem. So, t- tell me what you see is the issue there, and you know, from my point of view, awareness would, would be the first one.
1: Yeah, no, you spot on. It's absolutely awareness. But the question is, what are you having to be aware of? I think the first and foremost issue is like I always talk about, you know, everybody needs to do three things right for cybersecurity, That's security awareness, visibility and risk intelligence and security capability. So it's basically knowing yourself in order to understand what you're protecting from whom, and then being able to see how it's going with visibility and then prioritizing with risk intel, those important things first. And then finally, like, acting to those things that you've prioritized in a really quick way. So awareness, visibility, risk intel, and talent, security capability. And in quantum, we're missing all pieces of that puzzle, starting with the awareness piece. So first and foremost, you know, what are you protecting? Well, your cryptographic algorithms. Does anyone really have an understanding of what those are right now? Because I would argue that most people have no idea about which cryptographic algorithms they use you know, in a corporate uh, perspective, where they are, how, what their own suppliers are using, if they're working with them uh, in an encrypted way, what they're using across the scale of the internet, certainly their own VPNs. So those assets, those cryptographic assets, aren't something that we've traditionally categorized and classified within our own risk management frameworks, which is kind of silly because that's kind of where it all starts from a preventative control blah blah policy blah blah thing right that's where we start so we don't know that stuff from an awareness perspective and then if we say that we don't know that what you're protecting and then from whom you know what's the actual scope and scale of the threat what is the quantum threat how does it work what's the actual uh jeopardy to our cryptographic systems we don't understand that fully And I do want folks to understand both of those things. What are we protecting from whom around quantum in order then to subsequently go to the next phase of visibility and risk intel to actually see when it's going wrong? You need to be able to understand a little bit about that cryptographic stuff because what you see is we tend to either kind of completely minimize it and say, oh, it's a big problem. It'll be later. I don't have to worry. That's not true. That's the first thing. They need to understand the imminence of that thing. And then secondly, they also need to understand you know, that it's not going to be a cryptopocalypse. I can pronounce this now apocalypse. It's not a cryptopocalypse. It's something that we actually can address. It's not the end of the world. It's just, you know, we need to keep our heads and think about defense in depth and then acting. So like when it comes to that awareness and then visibility and then capability, we need to actually be able to act on the basis of this knowledge and this visibility and do something about it, whether that's building new quantum secure communication links, or I would say and, by the way, but it's, it's really and replace our old algorithms with new ones that are quantum resistant. So we need to do all of those things. And all pieces of that puzzle are missing uh, when it comes to quantum. Okay.
0: What, what about with AI? There's definitely mm-hmm. a lot more conversation about AI and the security mm-hmm. threats that it could pose. Um, do you think the right questions are being asked there though?
1: I think we are asking a lot more questions around AI than we have been in the past. I think now the discussion for a lot of countries and regions is still on the ethical use of AI. So I think, you know, rightfully so, maybe we're actually thinking about, hey, we've got this new cool technology. Do we actually understand it enough to apply it correctly and with guardrails so that when we apply it, it's not going to be succumbing to all of these, you know, AI threats. That being said, I think, you know, a little bit of the genie is out of the bottle. I think we're thinking about the AI ethics and things like that now, again, because it's suddenly becoming urgent, but we should have thought about it when it was just an important issue, and it's the same worry that I have around quantum stuff. So are we asking the right questions? Some, but I think the real questions we should be asking is because we know that the best benefit of the current LLM technologies is its accessibility The real question we should be asking is not what we think as, you know, single companies thinking about adopting it and what should our AI strategy be. We should be looking at that extended supply chain landscape, which I feel is underrepresented at the moment, because chances are high that the things that we're surprised by, that Zoom is going to make use of AI, not necessarily have informed consent and other vendors like it. You know, you saw the debacle a few months ago when Zoom (laughs) announced, hey, by the way, so we should really be thinking about... What are the questions we should be asking our extended vendor supply chain landscape around use of AI technologies before that, you know, kind of suddenly surprises us as well?
0: Okay. And there's
1: no complete faith in AI because um, there's a whole bunch of uh, folks that have this kind of the other side, the other polar opposite of complete faith in these AI algorithms where I would argue We need to verify that faith because there's certainly algorithmic attacks that we should be on the lookout for and poisoning those algorithms from an AI perspective that I don't think that we are asking there as well the right questions. It could be one of specialization, but I think it's also one of uh, security by obscurity. As long as we don't know, we're safe, which is not true.
0: (laughs) Okay. Um Okay. Now, I want to turn my questioning to, I guess, the regulatory environment or the emerging regulatory environment for corporates when it comes to cybersecurity. And and we're seeing increasingly some quite onerous obligations placed on um, the corporate governance around cybersecurity, the responsibility of directors and so on. Um, Do you you think that these regulations are a step in the right direction?
1: I think they're well-intentioned. I just don't think that they are well-fashioned, which is a real concern for me. Um, As a chief security officer, uh, I can tell you that I'm very much worried about what happened to both Joe Sullivan, who was the CISO of Uber, and granted, Joe Sullivan may not have made the best decisions which resulted in his prosecution, but the fact of the matter was that the chief information security was prosecuted, but not the CEO, and no one else in the company other than the chief security officer. And these are things that I do not understand because directionally, um, the responsibility also lies with the rest of senior leadership, not just the chief security officer. And if you take a look at SolarWinds, the Securities and Exchange Commission of the United States, because SolarWinds is a listed company, when they were hacked by the Russians, there were Two Wells notices issued by the SEC saying that there's going to be further litigation to the CISO, the chief security officer, and the CFO. Again, omitting the CEO from this. And I would argue that why are why is there any litigation going to the chief security officer, who's probably the one person that tried to improve cybersecurity posture at that company, you know, before the hack? I mean, obviously. There might have been insufficient controls, but that's certainly not at the responsibility of the one person who's actually trying to improve them. I mean, security is something that's done throughout the company through IT teams, product teams, tech teams. So why are we done just blaming the guy that was trying to fix it? So here there is that shift between well-intentioned to well-fashioned. I would argue that th- this is not a well-fashioned concept, and I think it bodes poorly for the rest of the cybersecurity industry. There is also a mandatory disclosure um, that's going to be coming out from the SEC, and it's going—it's already come out, actually, to be honest, in September, but it's going to be mandated to report under there in December. And I think that this is also quite significant because companies need to report incidents within four days of determining um, materiality. Hmm. And the determination of that materiality is rather vague. And then subsequently having to know, you know, during the fog of an incident, is it or is it not material is a hard estimation to make. And I would argue that that there's probably going to be penalties and fines levied when we get that part of it wrong as well. So I worry about this kind of sliding slope into penalties and fines, which it seems globally that's where we're going.
0: It's interesting because we, we had a situation in Australia um, over a year ago now where our second biggest telco, Optus, um, suffered what appeared at the time to be a massive data breach where millions of records potentially um, had been hacked. It turned out to be considerably less, but nevertheless, it it, it prompted a, a giant whole-of-government response and a complete rework of the way cybersecurity regulations um, are, are set in Australia. But over a year on, we st- still don't have any of the promised reports of various government departments into what happened, or even the, the the Deloitte report that Optus itself commissioned. It's over a year now, and it strikes me that it, either something's been hidden, or probably more likely, it's an incredibly complex thing to describe and analyse. So, so is that part of that risk that these are very? There's a lot of nuances, a lot of shades of grey in these sorts of things, and as evidenced by the lengthy time it takes to report on them. But we're applying these draconian penalties at the same time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, you know, black, black, black and white verdicts on a situation that's full of shades of grey.
1: Yeah, I, I share your concern. Um, I do think that that's a problem. And also, like, one of the things that your point to that it's just incredibly complex, I think that's the right way to look at it. It actually is really complex. It's difficult for companies to determine exactly what's going on and more even more difficult as they're uncovering how the hack happened with, you know, all of the uh, forensics and due diligence and trying to trace the path of initial exploitation, because I think I'm not sure, but I think up until now, we don't exa- or at least not everyone knows exactly what that initial ventry a uh, point was for the optus hack yeah. because i remember reading um that it was an exposed api and they weren't sure exactly how the hacker or it was uh, some other type of data breach perhaps phishing um, yeah but this was, was, something... this
0: was all media speculation because none of the ah. actual parties whether it be the regulator mm. or, or optus itself have ever confirmed yeah. anything so so no, it's a I great mystery around it all that's kind of my point yeah
1: yeah yeah, but that's exactly right. Okay, so that, that's usually how this works anyway during an incident because there's an incomplete set of information. If you knew all the things and you were monitoring everything, the chances are less likely, it's not still impossible, but it's less likely that you would have the incident manifest in the first place to the extent that it did because you'd be able to spot the activity of via hacker. But also in general, as an industry, we're not great uh, at detecting these hacks. It, you know, there's an average industry number in terms of days to detect that an attacker is in your network and the average time that attackers in your network has gone from 287 days to now it's like 212. Um, and that's an average. Yeah. So imagine that there's an attacker riding around your in- internet or your your internal infrastructure and they're just there for a good part of half a year and you have no idea. Yeah. So. So I think it's really difficult to then try to piece together when did they first get in, what did they do in terms of movement across the company, what did they have access to in terms of data, what could they have potentially taken out of the company. So it becomes very difficult to understand that attack surface, the damage that they could have inflicted and then what subsequently happened. So uh, they need that time. So when they're first reporting, if they have a report immediately, of course, they're going to get it wrong. You know, there's so many examples. And we're talking about the telco industry. My One of my big examples was, I don't know if you remember the talk talk incident in the UK.
0: Oh, please, the please, please uh, tell us. <laughs>
1: about it, yeah. No, the CEO came out very quickly and reported on the incident, but all the numbers were wrong. This the scope of the incident, the exposure of all the records, the uh, a- activities of the attacker inside the network. Because they reported too quickly, too early, the CEO was saying things that you know probably should not have said, um, and as a result of which, it became sort of this poster child for how not to disclose.
0: Right. Yeah. Generally speaking, and you have a telco background yourself, if I mm-hmm. understand you. are Um. KPN um, um, in the Netherlands. Um, um, Do you think telcos generally have their act together on this or do they still have a long way to go?
1: Um, you know, telco infrastructures are really large and complex, and I would argue that the hardest thing that they have is that know thyself portion of the equation, the majority of telcos. I think there's a lot of wonderful technical people who have good understanding of what needs to be done, but that is not necessarily saying that they have the ability to carry it out. Also, year on year, telco de- revenues globally are in decline. So every year they have less money to work with overall, and as a result of which have to be really efficient in terms of what they prioritize for cybersecurity and what they don't, even though they see it as like a foundational business to operate. And it's usually mandated by telecom uh, regulation. It's still not um, a a sort of thing that, that we can take for granted that they will have the budgets to solve all the problems that they are aware of, if they are indeed aware of all the problems. So the first and foremost is asset understanding the vulnerability landscape, and then subsequently programs to address those threats in legacy infrastructure because they have to and keep their legacy infrastructure intact while innovating on all new things. So whether it's all different types of fiber or, you know, 5G or evolving towards 6G or trying to make sure that the core networks are in line with their edge networks, you know, their radio networks and getting that all harmonized, that that, that's still not an easy thing to do because you pretty much have this sunk cost of legacy infrastructure that you need to protect. And, you know, invariably there will be some in secure a variation of Tomcat that's still running, that's like bleeping everywhere, tons of SSL vulnerabilities. I mean, they have a lot to fix. So while trying to manage that sunk cost issue and upgrading, or at least understanding that legacy, they also have to adopt all the new things. So my emphasis has always been, let's make sure that we innovate securely and then for the rest of the stuff that we have a strong understanding of the vulnerabilities that we could prioritize those well to take the worst off of the table and then work our way down because we're not going to fix everything on the legacy simply because some of that legacy has been around uh, for so long that there's not always patches available. There are things that are end of life that then all you're doing is adding firewalls and segmentation in between because you cannot completely remediate. You're just trying to figure out how to harden and segment. Yeah. So it's not always easy.
0: Okay, a final question. Um you know, I just described the Optus hack, for example, and it's believed that was just a you know a lone actor, <laughs> yeah you know, the, the the proverbial um, in cell in the basement type character. Um, but um, of course, there are there are state actors who who play in this realm and um, who, who who work at a, a global level. Um, and of course, it's it's probably beyond the remit of the average um, security officer for a, a, a mid-sized telco to understand the nature of those threats. So, is is there a need for more integration between governments, you know, and, and their understanding of those security threats through their security agencies and the security teams in telcos? You know, and when I say integration, I mean you know more, more discussion, cooperation, note sharing, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, and I would argue, by the way, to to your previous question. I think telco CISOs and telco IT teams are very well aware, very well aware of these uh, APT threats, these state actors, and that there already is cooperation between the majority of telcos and their state agencies on the nature of the threat, the types of attackers, you know, what infrastructure is vulnerable, um, because we are seeing the same things. And by the way, let me be clear, the majority of the state actors are just harvesting infrastructure they're deliberate in where they want to have harvested infrastructure but they are definitely doing it so it just makes sense to cooperate on there and make sure that your own backyard is not going to be supplying a state actor with just another vector in which to launch an attack so i would i would say that that you know interaction should already be there because that's what i've been seeing and by the way you know if it's a telco Uh, That's also providing mobile services. There's a lot of cooperation with the GSM uh, Association and with there's a security group that they can be a part of at the GSM Association, which is global, of course. And then subsequently, there's a lot of telecom ISACs, information sharing associations, which they can also take part in and size does not matter. Uh, What does matter is that you're willing to share, cooperate and reciprocate information, understanding of all of these threat actors and uh, the actual nature of the threats that you may be exposed to.
0: Okay, well, that was great. Thank you very much for sharing all those perspectives uh, with us, very much appreciated. And best of luck for your presentation at the conference this week.
1: Yeah, thank you so much.
0: Okay, moving on we have a special guest in the comms day studio coming coming out all the way from california i'm joined by parag Thakur. he's um with a company called netscope welcome to the studio thank you thank you for having me here okay now Tell us about where you're from. You're from a Netscope, but not originally. You were from a company that was bought by Netscope. So tell us your history and how you came to be with the company.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, just a little bit about Netscope. They are a market-leading cybersecurity company, and we are industry leader in secure access services edge, SASE. And my background, it's particularly from edge networking. And, you know, my I, I come back from pre-MPLS days, pre-network, you know, on the pre-2010s when MPLS was out there. And service providers would typically take a box, like a big fat box, and they would deploy it inside their branch office, and they would connect this to an MPLS link, which was this really, really expensive link. And one and a half meg MPLS link would cost probably four to five hundred dollars a month. And I would think to myself, and at the same time, actually Cisco was buying a lot of voice and video endpoint companies. And one and a half meg, and one and a half meg MPLS link is four hundred dollars. If you want 10 meg telepresence stream, it's going to cost you even more because you have to upgrade your bandwidth. So I would think to myself, how is this 1.5 meg MPLS stream going to work, or 10 meg telepresence stream going to work on this 1.5 meg MPLS pipe? So that's where I left Cisco. I became the founding member of a company called VeloCloud Networks, which is an SD-WAN company, and uh, sold VeloCloud to VMware uh, in December 2017. And one of the primary things that we did was include internet in the mix. And then how do you deliver MPLS-like performance and security on these commodity broadband links? Because internet was not as secure and it was not as reliable. So I did that, but right after the acquisition, what I started noticing was the trends were changing again. Uh, you know, every I still remember a meeting I had where customers said, hey, I didn't understand a single word of SD-WAN. And I said, why? And they said, why don't you come to my factory floor? So I fly out to their factory floor in South Korea, and they point to a machine and they say, that's my new branch. And inside the branch, I don't have humans, I have sensors. So can you give me connectivity out? And then when the machine there's a problem with the machine, I want to troubleshoot the machine remotely. So it was very clear that the perimeter was changing. Every remote user, every machine, every micro branch where you have few users, we want to extend the same level of flexible, high-performance, secure connectivity that sd delivered in a large branch office, right? And that's where we started in FIAT, which is infinite plus IoT. That's where the name inspiration comes from because it's about solving these diverse set of use cases and delivering that secure high-performance connectivity to all these use cases in a consistent manner, right?
0: Okay, now, so you're in a scope now. Now, my um, my limited understanding of your company is that you're basically putting um, SD-WAN together with security. Um, Tell me about the business model. Tell me about the trends that you're seeing in the market that
2: you're addressing. You see, right? I mean, I tell people when you start a company, you have to, you know, it's like a boat, right? You have a sailboat where you have an idea, which is the boat. You have a sailor, which is the team. But then you also need the wins. And to your point, those trends have to support it. So if you look at the three big trends, hybrid work, where people want to be in and out of the office, Second big one was the explosion of cloud apps. And the third one being explosion of IoT devices. See, the reality is when SD-WAN was happening uh, back in the days, uh, supporting 2,500 apps and doing prioritization for 2,500 apps was enough because these were on-premise applications. But this day and age, you have over, like if you Google how many apps exist, over 70,000 apps exist. So how do I prioritize these applications? How do, if you cannot detect an application you cannot prioritize those applications. You cannot control those applications. So first thing we did is, if you think from an SASE perspective, we have a common zero trust engine between the security side and the network side. And how can I give you a deeper visibility into all these apps? And can I, after I give you the deeper visibility into all these apps, can I control these applications? Right. So bringing all those things, not just for on-premise, but also for cloud apps, and extending that to IoT. You know, recently there was an attack. in in a big retail store where the TV screen in the retail store got attacked and the attack spread into the point of sale and it spread into other IT systems. So can I use AI and ML to detect an IoT device and fingerprint it and maybe day zero it has no risk but after 90 days there is a risk associated with that device and you want to dynamically block that device, right? So these are examples of how like 1 plus 1 is greater than 2. So when our company got acquired... Last one year, we have paid a lot of focus on how we can integrate the security stack and take intelligence from the security stack and bring it down to the network world, right? Into the SD-WAN world. That's what we define as a context-aware SD-WAN, where you are not just looking at applications, but you look at applications, application risks. You look at devices and device risks. You look at user and user risks, right? And get all these elements inside your SD-WAN solution and it gives you a much better zero-trust context awareness given.
0: Okay. Now, one of the things that um, I find really interesting about Netscope is that you don't just you know, offer these solutions that push people out onto public clouds. You've actually got your own network. So, so, so tell us
2: about that and what that involves. Yeah, we've built, you know, we are in over 70 regions. We have one of the largest uh, infrastructure. We don't use public cloud. We have compute locations at every single cloud location. These are our own locations. And... Uh, Uh, we've spent over $150 million just building our own infrastructure. So we don't rely on public cloud. And what is interesting is we have our security stack running. And what we are also doing is we are going to run our SD-WAN stack there. So if you talk about how do I get that secure optimized connectivity, now you have SSE from the cloud, you have SD-WAN from the cloud, like a full SASE delivered from the Netscope new edge infrastructure. Okay, now, you've,
0: you've been in Australia for a week, I understand, um, th- through the East Coast capitals. What are your um, impressions and your takeout so far, t- talking to your local clients about what's happening locally?
2: You know, in general, our adoption has been great in Australia. Uh, if you look at, um, you know, three of the top four insurance companies are our customers already. They're deploying SASE from us. You look at, uh, if you look at the Australia Stock Exchange, out of the 50 Largest companies, uh, probably one in every four companies are customers. So adoption has been really, really good for us in Australia. And that continues to expand. And what is interesting is people are looking for simplicity. People are looking for operational simplicity. They're looking for, hey, can I, I have the security stack, and can I get this network stack, and it all works magically together. So that's a common trend that I'm noticing, where people are looking for that operational efficiency. And not just for branch, but also for remote users right? So how do I get security and SD-WAN at our branch location? And then how do I get the same security and SD-WAN when I'm remote? That's a common theme that we are seeing across these customers.
0: Okay, well, look, thanks very much for dropping in and sharing your perspectives on what's happening in the market with us and have a safe travel back to the United States. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for your time. Now, moving on to our last interviewer today, Nico Van Sommeren. He's the CTO for Absolute Software. They're a company um, pretty well-known um, in the endpoint security space, which they've made their own. Um, and Nico's been there for a few years. But he he's um, established quite a profile in his own right prior to joining Absolute. He's been with many dressing companies over the years. He was a founder and CTO at Ant Software in the early nineties, in Cipher later on. Then uh, he was the Chief Security Architect at Juniper Networks, CTO at Good Technology, CTO at the Linux Foundation. He's been around. Anyway, um, the reason we wanted to speak with Nico is because he was um, he was uh, he, he's out in Australia with a message around the hype that we see of artificial intelligence. And there's been a number of IT companies recently have been hailing AI as a panacea for all your issues and security. But his contention is, hey, hang on, there might be a little bit more to it than this. So here's what he had to say.
3: Well, I think that um, <coughs> does... Uh, does, does uh, Machine learning. So, firstly, I I object to the the term AI for most things that are happening today yes. uh, on the basis that uh, they are uh, really applications of machine learning. Uh, yeah, sure. And yeah. so, um, will machine learning be important in the field of cybersecurity? Absolutely. It's a new tool. Every time we find a new tool, we find new ways to apply it, um, and uh, it's a powerful tool. It can do useful things. So, machine learning is a, a whole class of technology which will, uh, you know, be another tool in the toolbox. And uh, you know, people have been applying various sorts of machine learning to cybersecurity for some time. My cynicism is far more around. You know, what people call AI these days, the zeitgeist is particularly around large language models, yeah. and <clears throat> I think that the the hype around large language models is um, uh, significantly in excess of the utility for the majority of cybersecurity problems. So I think uh, you know if you want something that is going to take uh, the contents of a uh, a, a transcript of an interview and turn it into a thought leadership piece uh, or a, a blog post, then it's, it's really good for that sort of language problem. But when we are faced with complex analysis problems that are uh, you know, using non-language data, the sorts of large language models that are capturing the imagination at the moment are not powerful tools for that sort of problems. However, you know, some of the neural network techniques under the hood in these things do potentially have utility in a variety of uh, other problem spaces, including cybersecurity. Um, On the flip side, I think that, you know, there is some evidence to suggest that uh, some of the bad actors are starting to use large language models for certain types of uh, bad act not really in the way, uh, not not using them to write attack code, because um, generally creating new attacks requires a certain amount of cre- creativity, which is not the forte of these uh, these trained models. But for social engineering attacks, you now when we look at why have these uh, these AI machine learning tools in large language models captured the imagination. It's because they're really good at producing convincing sounding text. Uh, We know from a a lot of analysis that they're very convincing, but they're not always right. And in fact, uh, if you ask these uh, systems questions, they tend to actually produce wrong answers, a quite significant fraction of the time, Mm. but they produce convincing answers. And there's a whole bunch of security problems that we face in the real world, which are about people being convinced by untruths. Um, yeah, I was just going to say that. I mean, the, the usual giveaway in a scam text is poor
0: grammar or, or yeah. poor spelling. That's thing. it's a giveaway. It's a giveaway that it's um,
3: not not an authentic origin. AI solves all that. It, it does, though having spoken to people who spend a lot of time doing academic research into phishing and and scam emails there is a certain amount of evidence to suggest that these sorts of poor grammar poor spelling are to an extent deliberate because it weeds out the savvy readers (laughs) Uh, (laughs) and and (laughs) if you want to improve (laughs) your conversion rate what you want is for the really dumb, non-savvy people to respond, <laughs> and for the cybersecurity experts to write you off immediately and not and not waste your time. And so, you know, it's uh, it's unclear whether for the scam emails it's going to be a powerful tool. It might be, but I think for the social engineering attacks, um, it could actually be potentially very useful. Yeah. Okay. Just, just to go back to the original point
0: and, and you know, what Microsoft and others are saying, which is you know, we, we can use, we can put AI at the centre of what we're doing here. It, it, I, a couple of points I'd make. I'm not sure who's beeping there. A <laughs> um, couple, of, couple of points i make there. First is that AI seems to me to deal very much in patterns in probabilities, that kind of thing. Yep. Whereas hackers tend to be a little more erratic, a little more one-off, a little more innovative. So AI is actually not a terribly good kind of system of organization to identify a threat?
3: Well, actually, uh, perhaps that you could make make a good argument for the reverse, which is that if you've got systems which are very good at finding patterns and identifying patterns and reproducing patterns, uh, then they're also potentially very good at detecting anomalous behavior. Mm -hmm. And so actually, we use a, a neural network system in one of our products. We don't um, you know, make a song and dance about using AI, but we have a neural network-based anomaly detector in our network security products that allows us to learn the patterns of behavior of a particular user in fine detail and then detect anomalous behavior on that user's machines. And when there is anomalous behavior we have reason to question whether it's the legitimate user on that machine mm-hmm. or not mm-hmm. and so yes it's very they're very good at finding patterns for for spotting potentially harmful behavior finding patterns is actually a really powerful tool mm-hmm. so that is one of the areas where i do think machine learning techniques uh, are going to be potentially quite useful in cybersecurity. Okay, so what's your
0: actual core contention then, your objection to this idea that machine learning can fix all problems? What, what, what's your specific issue oh. there?
3: So, so my specific issue uh, about people saying AI is going to uh, fix cybersecurity problems yeah, yeah. has to do with the idea that we might be able to use AI to respond to attacks, I think building closed-loop systems uh, okay. that re- um, respond to attacks using AI is very dangerous right now because the uh, the reliability of these probabilistic systems is sufficiently poor that building a closed-loop system based on them would be would be dangerous. Uh, I mean, there are areas of AI where you use symbolic reasoning rather than more probabilistic models to to try and do things, but for the sort of wishy-washy fuzzy, noisy signals that we get out of security sensors, those sorts of symbolic systems are not a great fit. Um, I don't think that uh, machine learning tools are anywhere near fit to write defense code, to, 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 to be the, the tool that you use to defend against attacks, because they're very good at coming up with derivative answers based on what they've seen before. And as you say, hackers can be quite erratic and they come up with new attack techniques. Exactly, yeah. And yeah. the old responses are not necessarily going to be the right response.
0: Yeah. Uh, uh, yesterday, um, the head of Australia's Securities and Investment Commission um, gave a speech where he talked about the first ever hack that ever happened in the world, which was in 1903, when Marconi demonstrated his wireless telegraph system and because he was the first, it had never occurred to him that someone might hack him. And what actually happened was that a magician and a comedian had, had um, set up set equivalent radio equipment and intercepted the signal and, and uh, started playing pranks on the demonstration whilst it was in progress. Of course, the issue being that Marconi couldn't contemplate that there would be another person who would set up the equipment in the same way to interfere with his radio signal. But it, it literally happened on the first demonstration of the wireless telegraph. It was hacked, right? The point he was making was that you you, you should never assume that your adversaries can't better can't one up you. And I guess that 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 because he didn't realise he had an adversary for a point for for a start, He hadn't contemplated it. The point being, and, it, and and the point he was making was applicable to the, to today, where he's saying you you. Can't really be complacent about these things, and I guess that's sort of part of what your message is, isn't it? That you can't just insert a system in and think, "Well, that's it. I can rest easy now." You know, you, you need to be constantly
3: vigilant and
0: innovating and thinking of new ways
3: but, to combat this. Yes, and I think you know, throughout the the course of history, uh, you know, people come up with new technologies and they get applied for good and for bad. Mm. And I'm, you know, you'd be pretty sure that. After the f- invention of the first stone axe for for chopping up uh, animals that you've hunted, they they probably started using them pretty quickly for chopping up each other. Um, <laughs> so Indeed. you know, I think that you know technology continues to grow apace, and you know I uh, I always laugh when people say that technology is sort of. It, Improving at an exponential rate, which is the um, you know actually it probably is because I think that uh, you know a <coughs> te- continue, c- technology improves at a rate approximately proportional to the amount of technology we already have. Mm. And if you ask a mathematician what do, what do you call a function whose slope is proportional to its height already, then that's called an exponential curve. Actually, by definition, mm. and so you know, I think. Technology does continue to grow at an exponential rate, but it, it it continues to grow at an exponential rate for both the attack and the defense. Yeah, yeah exactly,
0: exactly. So we yeah, just
3: yeah. have to constantly be tracking what are the technology changes mm-hmm. and try to understand what are the ways that the people we're trying to defend against are going to try to use these technologies and then see how can we combat those new def- new attacks. And we constantly see new attacks from new quarters, in new ways, all the time, and so, you know, it's a it's a constant vigilance exercise, uh, and we can't just sort of expect that there's a panacea, and I guess I my objection to a lot of the sort of commentary that's coming out is that the idea that this might be a panacea. Yeah, understood. Now, um, tell me about your company, Absolute Software,
0: um, where do you fit into, into all of this, and... What are you? What are you offering a client base that can help them with some what of these types of challenges?
3: So, we're, our company is really predicated around the idea of cyber resilience. Right. So, if you if you look at the millions of machines that we help manage, um, you know, our, we have uh, fourteen or fifteen thousand customers, I think, these days, and we have uh, fifteen million end user machines enrolled on our platform mm. and we collect a lot of telemetry from those to help our IT and security uh, customers by uh, uh, manage those machines uh, and monitor those machines and make sure that they're properly configured and properly running and we know that people spend an awful lot of time and energy and money deploying security tools on endpoints mm. and very often those security tools are not functioning correctly right um, the, you know, people identify a threat, they buy a tool and they deploy it, but often they don't know whether it's actually being effective and very often end users or malactors or other, uh, circumstances cause the tools that you deploy to cease to function the way you want them to function. Right. And that has several knock on effects. Firstly, it means that your defense is not where you thought it was. Secondly, you're spending money, which is wasted. Um, and you know. so you're in a position where you are not able to bounce back in the face of an attack. And we're really about providing that resilience, that ability to bounce back in the face of ta- an attack. Because I think that realistically, it's not defeatist to say it's not a question of if we're breached, but when we're breached. Yeah. I think that the the rate of attack and the rate of change of the types of attack is so fast that we have to say, yes, we're going to do everything we can to reduce the 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 chances of being breached, but it's still probably going to happen in the end. And I sort of feel like in the in the cybersecurity space, we've sort of reached a point where, the, the spend that we try and apply to reducing the chances of being breached is reaching a diminishing return. Um, you, know, the, you know, you can spend twice as much on a car, but it doesn't go twice as fast. You can spend twice as much on a hi-fi, but it doesn't sound twice as good. And we're reaching that diminishing return in cybersecurity spend too, from the point of view of reducing the probability of successful attack. But the risk to our organization is the product of what's the probability of an attack and what's the damage of an attack mm. and you know we might have a a relatively small amount of damage but it's going to be a huge probability and that's a high risk or we might have uh, a huge damage if it happens but the risk of it happening is very small and that quite quite a high risk we can squeeze the p- probability of attack down as much as we want but we'll never get it to zero yeah. and we this point of diminishing return on the amount of spend. Mm. Our thesis is that companies need to spend more time thinking about okay, if you've got uh, the chance of an attack non zero, what can you do to reduce the cost of that attack? Yeah. How do you reduce the lateral movement? How do you reduce the amount of time it takes your users uh, to get your users back up and running? Mm. Um, how do you reduce the scope of the impact? because that brings down that risk as well. Yeah. And so we're really in the, the resilience space, and we do that by having a software tool which is embedded in the BIOS of, a lot of the, uh, nearly all the PCs that ship. Most of the major PC manufacturers put our code in the BIOS, mm-hmm. and that code is actually one of the first things that starts up when that machine starts. Um, and we use that as a vantage point to collect telemetry, to give teams insights into what their machines are doing. Mm. And we also use it as, a, as a, a launching point for repair actions. So we can say not just you've got tools installed and they're not working, mm. but you've got tools installed, they're not working and we can fix them. Yeah. And, and, and so that's how we deliver that resilience. We spend a lot of time uh, uh, thinking about how do we look at the traffic on uh, networks and use that to identify anomalous behaviours. Most of what we do at Absolute is around endpoint behaviour, but I think that some of the techniques that we've been looking at in terms of how do we uh, understand the traffic that's travelling over our networks is potentially very useful to the people who see that aggregated traffic. And I know that in a number of countries, particularly in the UK, the UK NCSC National Cybersecurity Centre, have been working with ISPs and telcos and network operators to try to get them to be better at identifying malicious traffic coming from end-user systems. Uh, we know that so many of the Um, threats on the internet are actually due to individual machines getting infected and then being used as a launching point for other attacks. So I think if I were wanting to improve the the national security, improve the, the cybersecurity posture of an entire country, trying to work with ISPs and network operators and telcos to get better and more proactive about identifying potentially malicious traffic, finding patterns in that, and working out how we can actually uh, start to shut some of that down to reduce either the quantity or the speed of that sort of propagation. Because I think that that's, that's one way that we can, you know, make make Australia a less attractive place to be breached by, by the bad guys.
0: And that's it for Comms Day Live. We'll see you next time.